Listen to this quote as we get started. I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that God was satisfied by my works. I did not love God. No, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. I beat upon Paul at Romans 1, verse 17, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. And at last, by the mercy of God, I began to understand. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. Those are the words of Martin Luther. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer. Here's the gist of what he was saying. Luther knew that on his own, he stood condemned before God. He knew that none of his good works could ever measure up to God's standard. And he was angry. He was angry with God. He was angry with the Apostle Paul. But as Luther wrestled with Scripture, as he wrestled with these very verses, something clicked. By the mercy of God, he understood something for the very first time. And when he did... He said that he felt like he was born again and had entered paradise. Brothers and sisters, when we see what Luther saw, when we understand what he understood, our lives, like his, will be forever changed. My prayer this morning is that whoever you are, whether you've been a Christian for decades, whether you've been a Christian for days, or whether you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, my prayer is that we would all, like Luther, some 500 years ago, see and understand why the gospel is such good news. As we'll see in these verses, the gospel is such astoundingly good news because it is the saving power of God in which his righteousness is revealed. A righteousness or salvation that comes to us by faith alone. So as we get started, here are two two comments. First, it's hard to overstate the importance of these verses. These two verses are the theme or thesis for the entire book of Romans. We're looking forward to studying this book together as a church. These two verses are the theme, the thesis. So this is what it's about in a nutshell. It might be helpful to think back to our study of the Gospel of John. The Apostle John wrote that book for a particular reason. And he puts it very clearly. He says that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So that's why the Apostle John wrote that book. And what about Paul? What's the purpose of this Book, the book of Romans. What's the theme? Well, we find it in verses 16 and 17. So if someone asks you, what's the book of Romans about? You won't be wrong if you go to these two verses. So these verses are really important for understanding the book. And secondly, this morning, we will simply follow the logic of Paul's argument. We'll see that there are four main parts. The, the word for shows up several times. We'll follow those cues. So, for example, verse 16, for, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for, for it is the power of God for salvation. Once again, for 
verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. And finally, as, as it is written. So we'll follow these four parts. Paul begins in verse 16 by saying, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why does he start with that little word for? Why does he start with for? It's because he's giving us the reason for something that came before in verse 15. So we're jumping into Paul's flow of thought, and it's helpful to start with verse 15. So if you have your Bible, look at verse 15. I'll read that for us. Paul says, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So, Paul, why are you so eager? Why are you so excited and amped up about going to Rome to preach the gospel? Verse 16, For, for I am not ashamed. Think about that word ashamed. Uh, may or may not be a word that we use very much. We might say or hear something like, I'm ashamed of what I did, or I'm ashamed of what I said. It's similar to embarrassment. So someone might say around this season, like me, I'm embarrassed that my football team is now called the Commanders. Really? Come on. The Commanders? If you follow the NFL, you know what I'm talking about. But that feeling, that feeling of embarrassment or, or shame, if you're like me, then the last thing you want to do is talk about it. That's the last thing you want to do. When I'm ashamed or embarrassed, I feel like hiding it so that no one knows. What about the opposite? How do you feel when you're proud of something or confident in something? You can't stop talking about it. You want everyone and their cousin to know. Well, that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, I am eager to preach the gospel for I am not ashamed. I want all the world to hear. I want Rome to hear. Wait, Paul wants to preach the gospel in Rome? In Rome of all places? That's like somebody saying today, I'm eager to preach the gospel in New York City. I'm eager to preach the gospel in Washington, D.C. Or in Las Vegas. Or in California. Remember, Paul, where was he eventually martyred? He was martyred in Rome. This is where he died for Christ's sake. So in our day today, it'd be like someone saying, I'm eager to go to Kabul, Afghanistan and preach the gospel. I'm eager to go to Mogadishu, Somalia, or Pyongyang, North Korea. That's where I want to go. I want to go there and preach the gospel. As Paul would walk the streets preaching the gospel, how would people receive it? What is the gospel to those who are perishing? It's folly. It's stupidity. And what does the Bible teach us to expect when we unashamedly follow Christ? We're told to expect suffering. And if anyone knew suffering for Christ's sake, it was Paul. So why is he, ashamed? Why is he not ashamed? Why is he so eager? Why was he not ashamed to preach the gospel in Rome of all places? Let's make this more personal and ask ourselves a similar question. 
Why should you and I be unashamed of the gospel? For us, the context is not Rome. It's our streets. It's our neighborhoods. Our living rooms, workplaces, schools, social media accounts. Why should we be eager to preach a gospel that the Bible says we will suffer for? Why? What reason do we have, like Paul, to not only be unashamed, but to be eager? To eager to share the gospel that the world around us views as, as stupid and as harmful? What reason do we have? And Paul tells us, He tells us the reason we have. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Why not? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. If the gospel was powerless to save, if it was powerless to save, then we should be ashamed of it. We should be ashamed. If the gospel was powerless to save, Paul may have said something like, really God, do I have to go to Rome? It's so, this gospel is so embarrassing. I preach and preach, but it's powerless to save anyone who hears. Is it really good news? It does absolutely nothing. If the gospel was powerless to save, we should be ashamed. But Paul says it's not, it's not powerless to save. It's the unstoppable power of God for salvation. So the preaching of the gospel, not only, it not only makes salvation possible, it affects salvation. It makes salvation happen there on the spot for everyone who believes. So right there and then, the spiritually dead become spiritually alive. The condemned are pardoned by God. The lost are found. His enemies in a moment, become his friends. The gospel saves. It's the power of God. So if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian today, then this happened to you. This happened to you. Sometime in the near or distant past, you heard the gospel and something happened. Maybe it felt like a moment. Maybe it felt like more of a, like a, Maybe it happened over a a season of life. But as Paul says in another place, he says, the gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. That's, That's my testimony. That's yours if you're a Christian. The gospel came to you in power and saved you. This is we, we are the living proof that the gospel is the power to save. It is. Now, who, who exactly are the recipients of this salvation, this saving power of God? Who, who are the recipients? We find the answer in the next couple words. Paul says, to everyone who believes. I want us to look at those Four words to everyone who believes. So here we see in these four words that the gospel is simultaneously the most inclusive and most exclusive message the world has ever heard. It's inclusive. It's not only for some people. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone. To everyone. 
Imagine Paul going to Rome with a gospel that was only for some. Imagine him walking the streets, needing to pick and choose. Oh, boy, I'm really sorry. This gospel is only for the rich, young, educated Gentiles who are politically conservative. I'm sorry, it's not for you. Imagine him going to Rome with a gospel that was for some, for the rich or for the poor. He and every one of us would be ashamed if that was our gospel. We would be ashamed. But that's not our gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone, regardless of all of the things that are different amongst people. Age and sex and nationality and education and income and vocation and criminal records and health. It's for everyone. It's the most inclusive message the world has ever heard. So no one can say the gospel wasn't for me. No one can say that. For everyone who believes. It's also the most exclusive message the world has ever heard. It's not the saving power of God for salvation to everyone, period. It's the saving power of God to everyone who believes. Who believes. We must believe in order to be saved. As Paul says later in the book of Romans, this is how he puts it. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You must do that. And if you do that, then you will be saved. So Paul doesn't say to everyone who believes and becomes a Jew, to everyone who believes and and gets his life together, to everyone who believes and joins this or that political party, to everyone who believes and agrees on this particular matter of conscience that's really important to me. He doesn't say that. No, he says the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, period. To everyone who believes. Paul actually doesn't end there with a period. I put that in. But, but check out the next words. The next couple words emphasize how far the gospel is going. How far is it going? It's, it's going far. Far and wide. He says to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So let's start with that second phrase. And also to the Greek. Paul is saying, unlike ever before in God's plan of salvation, unlike ever before, The gospel is going to the ends of the earth. It is going that far to the Greek, to all of the non-Jewish people out there. That's most of us here today. But at the same time, Paul says to the Jew first. You may remember that Jesus said to the Samaritan woman that salvation is from the Jews. Salvation is from the Jews. So, It makes sense. Think about it. The Jews were the first ones to hear the gospel. God worked through them to prepare for the coming of the Messiah. So it makes sense. The good news about Jesus has a particular focus on the Jews. That's all that Paul says here. So we'll leave it at that. And we'll come back to it later in the letter. He has more to say about the Jews and about their place in God's plan of salvation. What he says here is that 
Salvation is from the Jews, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. So the point, the point is that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is the saving power of God to everyone who believes. Maybe Paul was expecting an objection, I'm not sure, but you wonder, Paul, how can you be so sure? He claims a lot in verse 16. The saving power of God for everyone who believes. Paul, how can you be so sure? Is it really that powerful to save? You're telling me that the gospel saves anyone and everyone who simply believes? Really, Paul? How can that be true? What is it about the gospel that gives you the confidence to go to Rome? Or what is it that gives you the confidence to go into your workplace or onto your school bus and not only be unashamed, but eager, eager to preach and share this gospel? What is it? Why does the gospel bring salvation to all who simply believe? Paul tells us the answer in verse 17. So now we're at the third part in his argument. It's the third Four. He tells us in verse 17, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. What a loaded, what a loaded uh, um, verse, part of a verse. Let's, let's start with the phrase, the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. What is the righteousness of God? What does Paul have in mind here? Does it sound a little abstract to you? What exactly is the righteousness of God? Paul doesn't give us a definition. He doesn't say the righteousness of God, by the way, or footnote, by that I mean X, Y, and Z. He doesn't do that. So he's assuming that his audience, his hearers or readers, understand what he's talking about. So if Paul doesn't give a definition and assumes his readers understand, where do you think he's pulling this idea from? Where do you think we need to go to understand the phrase, the righteousness of God? Uh, If you're thinking Google or Siri, that's not right. (laughs) The Old Testament. The Old Testament. As you look at the phrase, the righteousness of God, in the Old Testament, you'll see that it's used used in various ways. So one question is, how is Paul using it here? How he's using it here is is in this way. In the Old Testament, we see that God's righteousness is another way of saying God's salvation. So God's righteousness is equivalent to, it equals his salvation. So so let me show you. Um, Listen again to Psalm 98, our call to worship on page 4. A few lines down. Once again, this is our call to worship. A few lines down, it says this. Listen to these words. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. The Lord has made known his salvation. What has he done, Paul? Say it again. Well, actually, this is the psalmist. But he has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. So the Lord's salvation is another way of saying his righteousness. 
We also see this, for example, in Isaiah 51. I put this in the Reflections page. That's on page 2. The prophet Isaiah says things like this. My righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out. Again, but my salvation will be forever. My righteousness will never be dismayed. And again, at the very end of those verses, but my righteousness will be forever and my salvation to all generations. So when Paul uses the phrase, the righteousness of God, he has this in mind. He has more in mind, and we'll see that, but he has this in mind. So you could, if it's helpful, you could replace salvation for righteousness in verse 17, and you get the gist of what he's saying. For in the gospel, the salvation of God is revealed. The salvation of God is made known. It's revealed. Think of that word reveal. We might use it in different contexts. The first thing that came to my mind was a month or two ago, I was at a gender reveal party. Uh, We cut into the cake, and it was pink inside. So my brother and sister-in-law are having another girl. Uh, The child's gender was revealed, was made known. So Paul is saying something about what's revealed in the gospel. Unlike ever before in history, the gospel is revealing something with such clarity, with such scope, with such power. We haven't seen it yet like this in all of redemptive history. What is the gospel revealing? It's revealing God's salvation. God's salvation. And how is he doing it? The salvation of God. How is God acting to save sinners? People like you and me. How is God doing it? What? Tell us more about this salvation. So Paul has in mind, as we'll see through the rest of the book of Romans, another true sense of what this righteousness of God means. So we're seeing hints of it now, and Paul will elaborate. So how is God... How is God saving? Well, it's not only the righteousness of God. It's also the righteousness from God. Both senses are true. So God saves. How does he do it? He saves by gifting sinners with a new status. He declares sinners righteous. A righteousness from God God's righteousness is given to guilty, condemned people. And in his courtroom, they're declared not guilty. They're declared righteous. God powerfully saves by putting sinners like us in right relationship with him. He gives or credits to us his righteousness. It is God's righteousness, the righteousness of God, the righteousness from God. But how can God give his righteousness to us? How can he do such an outrageous thing? Well, we find the answer in the next phrase. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from works for works. Is that what your Bible says? It's not what mine says. It's not what mine says. But think about it. Do we experience God's righteousness in any way? On the basis of our works? Is there any sense in which we can earn or merit or deserve or work for our salvation? 
No. Paul couldn't be more emphatic, more clear. He says, the righteousness of God, not the righteousness of man, not my righteousness, not your righteousness. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. In other words, we experience God's righteousness completely, totally, entirely, 100% on the basis of faith. Faith alone. Think about that. There is no better news than that. When we believe in Jesus, God declares us righteous in his sight. That's our salvation. The righteousness of another, of God in the flesh, the righteousness of Christ is gifted to me. It's credited to you. It's imputed to us. So on the cross, what happened? Jesus became sin for us. He took on himself our unrighteousness. And when we put our faith in him, when we believe in him, the now resurrected and coming Savior, we receive his righteousness as a gift by faith alone. And now the Spirit is remaking and transforming us into Christ's likeness. So we could say, now that we've been justified, we are now being transformed. Those who have been declared righteous are now being made righteous. Both of those go together. But the one comes first. God declares us righteous and then makes us righteous. So this is what clicked for Luther. This is what finally clicked. The lights turned on. He understood by God's mercy that God saves, not on the basis of anything we could ever do, but entirely by faith in Christ alone. And as Paul, as Luther said, here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. So it's any wonder Is it any wonder that Paul was amped up to preach the gospel? Is it any wonder that he was unashamed? The world has never heard good news like this. You and I could never, we could never have dreamed up a salvation as this good, this good, this undeserved, this marvelous. The righteousness of God comes to us by faith alone in Christ, not by works, But by faith in Christ, by faith in him, God declares us righteous. And his spirit is now remaking and transforming us in Christ-likeness. Those who have been declared righteous are now by the spirit being made righteous. For the record, Paul didn't make this up. He didn't come up with this. Um, That's the point of verse of part four, the second half of verse 17. Lest we think that Paul somehow came up with this good news from scratch, he didn't. He didn't. He says, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. If you have a cross-reference, you'll see that this is a quotation from the prophet Habakkuk. How neat that on the guys' retreat, we just studied the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk prophesied some 600 plus years before Paul. Centuries before Paul even lived and breathed. So Paul is saying, look, 
listen, what's revealed in such clarity and power now is what the prophets have always long awaited. The righteous shall live. We shall receive resurrection, eternal life, not by our works, but by faith alone. So, in a sense, what Paul is saying is, this good news is really old news. It's news that's been around for a long time, but now it's so clear. It's so clear. And it's going out to everyone, to everyone who believes. It's what the prophets, including Habakkuk, promised centuries beforehand. So think about this. Meditate on it. Do you see why the gospel is such good news? We could be saved in no other way. Paul is giving us here a little snapshot of the theme that he will elaborate on for another 15 chapters. He's just getting started, but he's wetting our appetite. He's saying, look, this is what I want to communicate to you. Here are the, here's the great theme that I want to flesh out in all of its glory, in all of its splendor, that the gospel saves sinners. It's the saving power of God in which the righteousness of God, the righteousness of not of man, but of God, is revealed. A righteousness that we receive by faith, by faith alone. So, thinking about ourselves, thinking about the people here, I wonder, is anyone here who's not yet a Christian? Are you like Luther was before his conversion? Are you angry with God as you try to be good enough and keep failing? Are you troubled by your conscience that's always declaring you guilty? The good news is that Jesus is the saving power of God for everyone, for everyone, including you who believe. You're not the exception for everyone who believes. So as Paul says, confess that Jesus is Lord. Believe that God raised him from the dead. And you know what? You will be saved. You will be saved. And are you here this morning as a Christian, as one of God's saints, as one of his beloved brothers and daughters, sons and daughters? That's most of us here this morning. We rejoice in the good news of salvation by faith alone. Well, for us, I think it's fitting to end where Paul began. Let's end where Paul began, because we've been following his logic, like descending steps. Let's, where did he start? Where did he start? He says in verse 15, So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are on Rome. Now, unlike Paul, we're not called to be apostles and to preach the gospel in the Mediterranean world. That's not us. But like Paul, and like every other Christian, we are called to be unashamed of the gospel. Unashamed of the gospel. God forgive me. God forgive you for all the times that we have been ashamed of our Savior. God forgive us for all the times we have shrunk back in fear or shame or timidity that's me i have done that but brothers and sisters 
praise God that we're not saved on the basis of our imperfect works. We're not. The good news is that we're saved by faith alone in Christ. That's, that's the good news. That's the gospel. His righteousness is, is ever and only our plea. So we could say, Jesus, it's true. Jesus is unashamed of you. He is unashamed of his brothers. He is unashamed of his sisters. We are his by faith alone. Wow. Christ is unashamed of you, Christian. So may we be unashamed of our Savior. May we be unashamed of this good news. And may we as a church faithfully proclaim Christ until he comes again. Amen.